The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let's continue to worship God by hearing from His Word. Our passage this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 2. We're looking at Hebrews 2, 16 through 18. Hebrews 2, verses 16 through 18, give our attention as God Himself addresses us in His holy and inspired Word. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the, in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This concludes the reading of God's word. May God now add his blessing to it. For the sake of Christ and the good identification of his people. It's hard to find good help these days. You may have said this. You may have heard it. And if you have any sort of ministerial duties or own a business, you really can probably relate with this. How can I find somebody who's reliable, who's faithful, who has a good work ethic? Those people are hard to find now in days. And this even includes just Finding somebody for a simple repair. I remember when we first moved here, we learned that our sewer line needed to be replaced. And the guy that was supposed to do that work, or at least oversee it, I had a really, really hard time getting a hold of. Wouldn't return my calls, just couldn't seem to get a hold of him. And I finally got a hold of him one day. And I got a hold of him by climbing Hart Mountain. And as I was coming down, I happened to run into him. I said, hey, you're the guy I've been trying to contact. Oh, are you Brian? Oh, yeah. And he finally took down my, my information. I had to literally climb a mountain to, to get in touch with this guy. And so it's hard to find good help these days. It really resonates with many of us. And therefore, we can revert to this other saying, which is, if you want something done, you just have to do it yourself. And this is actually the way we can feel about the work of Christ. Not that we would ever say this out loud. But the unbelief in our heart kind of whispers this to us. Do you really trust Christ? Is He really a good help? You know what? You might have to do this yourself. And this is reflected in many of the fears that we can have, worries, anxieties. It shows up in the fear of death, an underlining fear of doom that something bad is going to happen to me. Perhaps you struggle to trust Christ because of the hardships you've been through in your life. If He loves me, and if He cares for me, 
Why did He allow me to go through that hard period in my life? Now, we would never say this out loud that we don't trust Him, but because of the backlash we, we might get, we, we don't say this out loud, but there can be this in our heart, I don't know that I could trust Him. Is He really going to help me? Is He really there for me? And my heart is struggled. This is why passages like this help us. He is a faithful and merciful high priest. He has come to help us. He has come to help us by virtue of the incarnation as we see here. And today we wrap up kind of this five-sermon mini-series on the incarnation. Really, it's just Hebrews chapter 2 talking about the wonder of the Incarnation. And there's five uh, S-words we used. Good S-words. Well, some of these aren't, aren't good. Uh, the first one is that he deals with our sin. Our sin. You know, have you ever said something, and then after you say it, like, oh, that, didn't, that, didn't, that, that was bad. So that, that, was, that was one of those things right there. But in the first, we saw how the Incarnation deals with our sin. Christ came and suffered for us to take care of our sin, and also He's the one who sanctifies us. We're being sanctified into His image. Second, His his incarnation deals with our shame. So sin and shame. Uh, He has come to be one of us, therefore He is not ashamed of us. And He is bringing us many sons to glory. No shame. Third, His incarnation heightens our service to God, particularly our public worship. That is the difference between Old Covenant worship and New Covenant worship. Old Covenant worship, worship from afar. That veil remained in place. Christ comes. He suffers and dies. The veil is torn in two. And now Christ is in our midst, singing with us and speaking to us. Fourth, we saw last week, Christ's incarnation deals with our slavery to the devil from fear of death. We've seen sin, shame, service, slavery. Today, the fifth one, the incarnation deals with our suffering. Our suffering. And there's two types of suffering that makes Christ's incarnation crucial. First is an eternal suffering, the wrath of God. And then second is a temporal suffering, that is the trials and temptations of this life. Christ helps us in both of them. He delivers us completely from one. And that's the first one, is the wrath of God. And before we get there, just a brief note to consider. In verse 16 it says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now this verse literally says, He takes upon himself not angels, but the offspring of Abraham. The question is, what does that word take upon mean? The word take upon is the word that Scripture uses to refer to the incarnation. Uh, Christ took upon himself humanity, a human nature. And so some of your versions are going to reflect that. Using the King James Version, it says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. However, this word can also mean to to help, to, to take hold of in the sense of helping. So when 
Peter walked on water and he started to sink, he cried out to Jesus to help him, and Jesus took hold of him. So that word also means that, and that's reflected in the ESV and, and other major English translations. That word can be translated as both. And so, don't know exactly which, uh, which one it is, but the basic point remains the same. Christ, by virtue of his incarnation, taking on humanity, has come to help us. And he is that seed of Abraham, as it says uh, here. And he helps the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, which, according to Galatians 3.29, is both Jew and Gentile believers. If you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, it says. Uh, we inherit the promises by virtue of being his spiritual offspring. And these are the ones he has come to help. He has come to help believers. So it's because it's Abraham's offspring whom he helps, that is all believers. Verse 17 goes on to say, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If he was going to come to help us in the way we needed to be helped, our sin and misery, he had to be made like us in every way. That is, he had to become a true man with all that entails, a rational soul, having a soul that feels and has emotions. Everything that pertains to humanity. Uh, the exception is, of course, this is without sin, as Hebrews 4.15 says. This is because to help us in this way, to deliver us from our sin, we needed a high priest. What the Old Testament really talks about. How are we going to be delivered from our sin? How is that sin that separates us between us and God, brings that separation, how is that going to be dealt with? Well, it would be through a priest. The priest makes that sacrifice. The priest is the one who represents the people. And your representative has to be like you. And so Christ, if he's going to be our high priest, puts on our very own nature and represents us. And it says that he does it in order to make propitiation for our sins, as our verse says. Propitiation is one of those big words that we find in the Bible. But it's a very crucial word. It's a very important doctrine that we must understand. Propitiation simply means satisfaction of God's wrath. Satisfaction of God's justice. That punishment that we deserve for our sins, that God executes, has been taken care of in full. That's what propitiation means. And we have pictures of this in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 16, on the great day of atonement, the high priest takes a sacrifice, lays his hand on its head, and confesses the sins of Israel over it. Then he slaughters it in the presence of the Lord and takes that blood and sprinkles it in the most holy place before the Lord to indicate that that sin that laid on the people was laid on the sacrifice. 
so that the punishment for the sin that they deserve was taken by the sacrifice. And God is pleased with that. That in Leviticus 16, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is called propitiation. So you have a picture of that there. There's another picture that I want you to see in the Bible of propitiation. And it's, in, it's found in Numbers 16. So if you keep a finger in Hebrews, turn over to Numbers 16. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Turn over to Numbers 16. And, and we see this here. This is a, quite a dramatic picture in Numbers 16. Uh, here in number 16, there's a man named Korah and his family. They gain, a, they gain a sizable following and rise up against the leadership. They rise up against Moses and Aaron. And they, they, they blame uh, them for their troubles. And this demonstrates their unbelief in God's goodness and promises uh, by, by, by saying that Moses led them thus far for their harm, only to kill them in uh, the, the, the wilderness. And it really shows that they don't trust God. That they don't understand that it's God who's actually leading them. It's God who's actually bringing them to where they are. But they, they blame Moses and Aaron for it. And then, after they are swallowed up in the earth as a whole, the people still did not learn. And so they again rise up in rebellion. And God says in verse 45, Get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. So this is God's wrath going out against them. However, they have a mediator who intercedes for them. Verse 46 says, And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them for wrath has gone out from the Lord the plague has begun well this the, the thing that prompts Moses to act is as our verse says wrath has gone out from the Lord so the problem is wrath the wrath of God and this is expressed in this instance in a plague and so in light of the wrath of God coming on the people, Moses tells Aaron, the high priest, to act quickly in making, as the ESV says, atonement for the people. That word atonement, the Hebrew word kofir, is the word from which we get the word propitiation. So this is going to be a picture of what propitiation looks like, of how the wrath of God is going to be resolved or satisfied. Wrath has gone out. Quick, act so that propitiation can be made. So that God's wrath can be satisfied. Moses tells Aaron to take a censer. And this is a device that was used specifically to carry an offering of, of incense. It was like a, a, a mobile offering. And it was to be taken from uh, the altar, fire from the altar. And that's important. Uh, Moses didn't say, just light any old fire. Moses says, no, take fire from the altar. 
Well, what's the altar? The altar is the place where the offering was made for sin. That whole burnt offering, a pleasing aroma ascending to God in light of the sin of the people, that God, to use human, uh, human terminology, is soothed by that offering so that he does not execute his justice on the people. So take fire from that offering. Take part of the sacrifice that pleases God. So it's tied to the sacrifice. And so Aaron did this. And so we, we go on to see how this ended. In verses 47 through 48, it says, So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran in the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped or checked. So this is what happened here. Aaron quickly did what Moses uh, told him to do. While the wrath of God in the form of the deadly plague was spreading out through all the people, making its way row by row by row. And this is not somebody got sick and perhaps can recover. It, they dropped dead, row by row, dead, 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 dead. And Aaron is quickly trying to get the censer together. And he runs out and tries to get out ahead of the plague. And once he gets out ahead of the plague, he stands there with that censer. And that is when the plague is checked. That's when it's stopped. That's when the wrath of God is no longer executed. And can you imagine? I mean, this is a real story. This isn't fairy tale or fantasy. Can you imagine being in that group of people? Being the first row that was saved? As you, watch, as you see the row in front of you, people lying dead, that you were spared. And you know that you were spared not because of anything you did, not because uh, you quickly reformed yourself or you made some sort of effort, but the one thing and the only thing that saved you from this wrath of God was this censor, this offering from the altar. That is a picture of propitiation. Being saved from the wrath of God by an offering. And this is what Jesus has done for us. This is why Jesus put on humanity, become our high priest in order to be our propitiation. That it's His sacrifice. It's not incense it's not an animal sacrifice. Those were just types and shadows of what Jesus would do. But it's His sacrifice and His sacrifice alone that satisfies God's wrath against you. That the reason why you are not going to be eternally punished for your sins is because of that single sacrifice and that single sacrifice alone. It's not because you worked hard at reforming yourself or you worked hard at getting your, your, your sin dealt with, or that you worked really hard at trying to please God. But the reason why God is satisfied to forgive you and not execute His justice against you is because of Christ alone and His sacrifice in your place. And that's it. Saved from the wrath of God because of Christ and Christ alone. 
And so Christ has dealt with the worst suffering we can imagine by His propitiation, by His sacrifice. And this makes Him a merciful and faithful high priest. <coughs> I'm actually getting over a cold, so... Thankfully, I'm more than halfway through my sermon, so let's see. We'll see what happens from here. <coughs> Excuse me. But he is merciful and faithful in another way. You see, it says he took on humanity in order to become a faithful and merciful high priest. Uh, God, Christ is, is already merciful as God. Merciful and faithful as God. So apart from putting on humanity. But this verse says that by taking on humanity, he becomes merciful and faithful. So this mercy and faithful pertains to his humanity. A specific kind of mercy and faithful that's tied to his humanity, him as a high priest. And this brings us to the second type of suffering that makes Christ's incarnation crucial. And that is temptations or trials of life. And this brings up really this temporal suffering, what we go through in life. Verse 18 explains how he is a faithful and merciful high priest. It says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is what makes him merciful and faithful as our high priest. Because he suffered from his temptations and trials. Therefore, he knows what it feels like to live this life. And he pities us who are being tempted in this life. And he is therefore able to help us who are being tempted going through trials. But John Owen says, Such have need that us have need not only to be saved by his atonement, but to be relieved, favored, and comforted by his grace. Now, in our English today, that the word temptation really has more of a narrowly restricted meaning for uh, a temptation, an evil for sin, or a desire for evil or sin. This, this, this draw towards evil. However, while the word can be used in that sense, it also means to be tested or to undergo trial. And that's what that's how this word is being used here. Uh, these are simply the difficulties in life that make us want to give up or give in. And this Jesus faced in every major way. He did not have to fight any sinful desire from within because he had no sin nature, but he did undergo many trials and tests that wearied him. Face poverty, hunger, thirst, weariness, reproach, rejection, unkind treatment, family thinking he's out of his mind, betrayal by an intimate friend, abandonment by his close disciples, physical and emotional pain, false accusations, disciples leaving him when his teaching became too hard for them to accept. Now you can look at, at Jesus having this huge following, 
in John 6. And then he says, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. People left him for that. And Jesus even turned to his own disciples and said, do you want to leave me too? He knows what it's like to go through the hardships of life. And worst of all, he faced the agony of the cross where he was forsaken by God and felt eternal hell in his soul. A suffering that we who believe will never know. And he was tempted towards avoiding that suffering of the cross and abandonment of his father. Uh, Satan tempted him by saying that he will give him all the glory of the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down to him. In other words, Jesus, you can have it all now. I know this was promised to you by your father, but you can have it right now. And Satan did have that power, otherwise it would not be a temptation. Because man had fallen into sin by giving in to the devil. The devil became the prince of the world, Jesus says in John 12. But it's at his cross that Jesus said, I have cast out the prince of this world. Jesus had to go through the suffering of the cross in order to gain the, the, this, this, his kingdom. But Satan said, you can have it all now. Without the suffering, I will give it to you. And of course, Jesus is not going to get in, but he had to be determined to push through that temptation and worship God alone. He says, get behind me, Satan, or get away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship God alone. And then he's again tempted when Peter told Jesus that he should never go to the cross, where Jesus responded the same. Get behind me, Satan. He kept getting tempted towards this. And when he was in the garden, on the night when he was betrayed, what did he ask for? Father, if possible, let this cup pass from you. Yet not as I will, but as you will. See, Jesus in his humanity did not want to go through the suffering of the cross. And that's actually an appropriate response because you understand what that is. It's the wrath of God. Any moral and righteous person should fear God and should understand what it's like to undergo His wrath. And that's not something that any of us should desire. It's unbelievers that say, ah, what's this judgment coming? Who cares? But Christ, even though He didn't deserve it, knew he was about ready to face the worst thing imaginable, being forsaken by the Father, being abandoned and facing the wrath of God in his soul. He should not want to be separated from his Father. He should not want to face the wrath of God. And that's why he prayed here. You understand he's a true man. He's wrestling through this. And of course, he went to the cross and drank that cup dry down to its dregs for us. But this reveals that he was exposed to trials, to temptations, uh, to use the, the, the broader sense of the word, that innocent human nature could be exposed to. He was exposed to. And because he suffered while being tempted, undergoing severe trials, 
This means that he is able to help those who are being tempted. Obviously, he has all power and grace uh, as God to give us strength to endure the trial. But this is specifically in the context of him being able to help us who are being tempted because he himself has experienced these things in his humanity. He knows what it's like and is at the ready to show mercy, comfort, sympathy, and compassion. How many of you, you women in here who have given birth, how would you feel if a man said, oh, I know what you're going through as you, as you labor? Yeah, you would say, yeah, get out of here. And of course, you know, I think I saw this, this, this joke where it's like, well, I've had a cold. I know what it's like. So, of course, you would say, get, get out of here. You provide no comfort for, you know, for me whatsoever in that. But how about another lady who has gone through it? Say, yeah, this person knows what it's like. You know, as, as, as a pastor, there's, there's something about talking with other pastors who go through particular trials that is very, very comforting for me. It's knowing that that person knows what it's like. That person can sympathize. That person can go through it with you. And this is who Jesus is. I think we tend to think that Jesus, because you know he's God and holy and has uh, has never sinned, that he can't relate with us. He doesn't know what we think that he responds by saying, "Oh, stop your whining," because he's up in heaven and you're suffering here on earth. What does he know? We may say, but Scripture here says he knows. He knows. He has suffered while being tempted or tried, going under trial. So He is able to show you compassion. He is able to help you. He is able to give you the care and love that your soul needs. Have you been abandoned? Have you been forsaken? By the ones that should have stood by your side. Jesus knows what that is like. When his disciples in his darkest hour abandoned him. And he was betrayed by an intimate friend. Have you suffered at the hands of religious people who should have done what is right to you before God? Jesus knows exactly what that is like. He suffered at the hands of the religious Jews. Have you suffered loss and heartache? Jesus knows what that is like. He lost many followers, one of his closest friends, in favor with his own hometown who despised him. He knows what that is like. Have you been rejected, shamed, Hated, insulted, falsely accused. He certainly knows what this is like. People rejected him, called him crazy, said he had a demon. And did Jesus ever teach anything false? No, he didn't. He taught the truth. 
And yet people still looked at him and said, you are out of your mind. He knows what it's like to be treated like this. And Jesus surely knows what it's like to grow weary and feel like giving up. He had to face the suffering of the cross. And in that dark hour, He said, Father, let this cup pass from Me. But yet He still pressed on. You could count on Him to be merciful and faithful to you as your high priest. You can come to Him and He will give you help. Put on your very own humanity to experience these things. So He knows what it is like. Now you may say, okay, you know, I can trust that He'll be merciful to me as an innocent sufferer. I mean, it's not my fault, as it was with Him. But what about when I am tempted to sin and even give in? Will He be merciful to me then? And the answer is yes. Here's why. First off, the fact that you are truly grieved by sin is evidence of the Spirit's work. Reformer David Dixon said, Sin and temptation to sin is more grievous to a true child of God when he sees matters rightly than any trouble. Go through trouble? Yes, that's hard. That, that weighs on us. The greatest trouble is my own sin. When I see my own sin, in fact, the trouble and the difficulties that God brings into my life, I know it's for this purpose. To bring out more of my sin. To bring out more of my fears. To bring out the things that I'm relying on that aren't God. But then I see that I don't always rely on Him. I don't always keep His commandments. I don't always trust Him. And so those who have a tender conscience and see their sin, you could think that, well, God must not love me because I'm just not adding up here. But the very fact that we see our sin and are grieved over it with a godly sorrow shows us that God is at work in us by His Spirit because He's the one who brings conviction of sin. However, we can also thank God that we have a merciful and faithful high priest who will receive comfort and help us when we do sin because He also knows the suffering He faced for that sin that you have committed. He tasted the suffering for you in the wrath of God for the sin that you have committed. You see, He's not ignorant of the payment for sin that He Himself took for you. He knows that your sins are paid for in full. He paid for them. So why would He hold them against you? Why would He, who suffered for you and rose again for you, knowing that you do not stand guilty, filthy, or rejected by Him, and that He is in the process of sanctifying you, why would He reject you? Why would He not receive you 
When that sin that you have just committed is a sin that's been forgiven, a sin that's been paid for in full. That guilt no longer sticks to you. He took all that guilt upon Himself. He was made sin for us and that our sins were credited to Him and He stood condemned for them. He is the one that faced the shame and rejection before man and God for that sin so that you wouldn't have to. But there is no guilt and condemnation for your sin. And as, and as John says in 1 John 2, when you sin, He stands up and advocates for you. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our great high priest who responds in pity, love, and grace to us weak and struggling sinners. One reformer said it very well. We need not be discouraged from going to Christ by reason of our apprehension of our own unworthiness and wretchedness. The more deeply we are affected with it, the more will our merciful high priest pity us and be ready to afford all reasonable comfort unto us. Such he invites to come to him, and to such he promises aid. So, not only has he forever dealt with the eternal suffering, the wrath of God, he also provides help to us in our temporal suffering, including the sins that we do fall into. So may we ever draw near to him, confident that he will receive us and help us, even in the midst of our temptation. You're struggling with sin. You want to sin. Call out to Him. He will help you. He will not refuse you. Because as Scripture testifies to here, He is our merciful and faithful High Priest. Amen. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we do ask that You would help us see these things and believe these things. But thank You that Christ has paid for sins in full. We do pray, Father, that you, would continue, that you will continue to help us and guide us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.